You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of rules-based investing. For long-term listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your trend-following journey. And if you're newer to the show, our hope is that today's episode will trigger some curiosity to check out the back catalogue and all the past episodes that you may have missed. Today we bring you another guest, a guest that for some needs no introductions and for the younger part of our audience may not be a name that you are familiar with. Our guest today is Nick Leeson, who made headlines around the world back in the mid-90s for his trading. Nick, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. And of course, good afternoon to you, Moritz. Hope you're both doing well. Hello, Niels. Good afternoon. And hi, Nick. I think you're in Ireland. So good afternoon uh, to you. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, looking forward to it, guys. Likewise, Nick. Now, we have lots to talk to you about, of course, um, but as usual, we're going to do our quick run-through of the week in terms of what took place inside the trend fund portfolios that we work with. So uh, let me suggest to you, Nick, that you take an extra sip of your coffee whilst uh, Morris and I just do a quick run-through. Now, of course, yesterday and this entire week, I guess it was all about employment or maybe rather unemployment as the markets digested the long-anticipated numbers from the U.S., but, you know, despite a drop of 20.5 million in non-farm payroll and the jobless rate climbing up to 14.7%, and by the way, also negative revisions to both February and March numbers of some 210,000, making it the worst ever employment report, the equity markets uh, closed out on a strong note this week. Uh, for instance, we now have the Nasdaq up 40% from its March low and, and uh, only a few percent away actually from its all-time high with other U.S., I would say mainly U.S. equity indices uh, in close pursuit. Um, something else that I thought was interesting uh, that happened actually yesterday was that for a brief moment, uh, some of the U.S. interest rates, uh, namely those in the spring of 2021, went slightly negative, um, perhaps maybe as a consequence of the latest uh, GDP Now tracker. Uh, from the Atlanta Fed, showing an annualized 34.9% decline for the second quarter on a sequential basis, um, and that's compared to only a minus 17.6% from their Tuesday update. Um, but as one commentator from JP Morgan Asset Management was quick to remark, negative interest rates have not helped the Japanese economy. They haven't helped the European economy. So with all that in mind, Moritz, how was your week? Good week, bad week. Uh, the markets are upside down, in my opinion, but my opinion doesn't really count. Like you say, I mean, NASDAQ, uh, I got bounced out of my short. NASDAQ is now positive year to date. Who would have thought that? No virus for the NASDAQ, at least. That index doesn't have any fever. And uh, oil markets recovering. They've more than doubled from the lows uh, in, in the June contract. So it's, um, it, it's remarkable. Uh, how that recovery is taking place and how risk assets are recovering. And good news is we don't have to think about uh, the reasons. We'll just, you know, follow our systems and our rules. So um, obviously I've lost some money uh, by still being short some of the equity indices. Um, and 
you know, being short crude, obviously that didn't help last week. Uh, also lost money by being short life cattle. Um, some of the good positions I had on, um, okay, yeah, long bonds, uh, the gift that keeps on giving, I've said it before, uh, long OJ, uh, short emissions, all of that stuff worked. But at the end of the day, bottom line is a bit more than 1% loss for the week. Uh, I'm now up 2% year to date. Um, it is what it is. It is what it is, absolutely. I mean, it certainly was a really... I mean, it is a really strong reversal we've seen in the equity markets and, and other sort of risk-on markets, uh, I guess, uh, like energy and some of the commodities that you mentioned. Um, and in fact, this week, um, there wasn't many markets that went down, actually, uh, maybe except for the index of fear, the, the VIX. Um, for our strategy, it's very much a similar story as to you. Um, small drop in performance for the week. Um, and, you know, that came really from energies. Things like copper, live cattle didn't work out very well this week. Um, and then uh, short-term interest uh, and and actually the VIX itself uh, were kind of the best markets uh, on our side. Anyways, enough about all of that. Now let's turn to, uh, to you, Nick. Um, I think it's true for most of us that in life, a few decisions can really shape and define our lives. And I wanted to start out by just asking you, what you believe to be some of these key decisions that have shaped uh, your life so far? Well, I, I mean, for me, obviously, moving to um, moving to Singapore um, all those years ago was the the start of things going wrong for me. Um, so, you know, there've been a, a, a number of decisions that have that, that have continued from that time that have led me to where I am now. So. You know, from a business perspective, a lot of the decisions at that time um, weren't particularly good. Um, you know, there was a lot of bad decision making that was often compounded with, uh, with with even more poor decisions over that period. And you know, basic test of my honesty and integrity very early on um, when I was in Singapore, and I was I was probably of an age at the time. I was 25 years old when I was in Singapore where I, I probably wasn't as equipped as I could have been to make some of those decisions. And, you know, it's, uh, and I'm not going to blame youth. I mean, it was, uh, you know, they were my bad decisions. And there's, there's some simple things that you can do. I mean, we've all, all worked in big firms and big organisations. And, um, I, you know, my, my belief is that you're, you're always surrounded by people that can help and, uh, you know, the, the most simple thing that you can do most of the time is ask for help and advice. And I never did that. You know, I thought that I could cope. I thought I'd be able to work my way through the situation. I didn't really have any idea of, uh, of, what, uh, of what each day was going to entail, but I thought that I was able to do that. So it was that, that youthful bravado that you were able to cope with everything. And that was probably you know, the first decision in, in, in not asking for help and advice. And, you know, I always, as I'm talking around the world and doing different things, that's, you know, I try to impart that to everybody as much as I do to my children, you know, always ask for help and advice. I'm around and, you know, I can, uh, you might not always agree with me, but, you know, I am always right. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, and, 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 you know, um, as, as, uh, as I think I mentioned uh, be before we pressed record, I mean, Moritz and I have not talked about our questions today. So, so I'm going to continue just a little bit just on my side with, with a couple of more questions just to frame the conversation, get a little bit of context. 
Um, you know, uh, of course, uh, you know, some listeners will be familiar with a version, I would say, of, of what took place during the three years you were in Singapore. Um, and I think time-wise, I think we're talking 92 to 95. But on the other hand, we also know that, you know, what, what you hear, and certainly when you don't hear it from the horse's mouth, may not actually be uh, the accurate um uh, you know, version of things. And I don't want to spend too much time today really uh, talking about that uh, as such. But I, and, and I know you've been asked this a million times, I'm sure. But if you don't mind, just spend a little bit of time of of sort of summarizing, you know, that that period um, just for, for context, uh, if, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I, I, I left school at the age of 18, so um, I didn't go to university. I went straight to work in the city. Um, so, um, you know, rocked up at 15 Lombard Street for Coots and Company, which was Queen's Bank. Um, like I say, hadn't, hadn't been to university, so it was just into, in, into the city of London. The, uh, uh, it was the Big Bang era, so there was lots of change. There was lots of new banks coming into the city. There was a shortage of people, really, um, that were skilled to work um, in, in those particular environments at the time. So there's lots of people changing jobs on a, on a fairly, uh, fairly regular basis. So I was at Coots for a couple of years. Then I, um, then I moved over to Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley was an account that I looked after. So, um, you know, they offered me a job. I went to work for Morgan Stanley um, for a couple of years and then was headhunted to Bearings. And... Um, yeah, futures and options derivatives were uh, one of the growing um, growing sectors within the industry at the time. Um, and, and that's what I was specializing in to the latter part of my, um, to my stay at, at Morgan Stanley. And, uh, and bearings were quite big in the Japanese warrants market. Um, that was where they made most of their money at that time, but they were expanding into futures and options. So they wanted somebody initially to come over and look at their control functions and, and, and their back office functions and run those. And, um, and then from there, I, I moved around the globe with bearings and, and worked in Hong Kong, Indonesia, um, uh, Korea for a short period of time and Germany. I was in Frankfurt for a little bit of time um, and then eventually ended up uh, running the futures and options operation for bearings in Singapore. And. You know, I was 20, uh, I was 25 at, at the time that I moved to Bearings in Singapore um, and I was 28 at the collapse of the bank. So, and, and it was in that short period, as you mentioned, between 92 and 95, um, that I racked up something like 862 million pounds worth of unauthorized losses that led to the collapse of the bank. But it was, and again, you know, the blame is all mine and I never want to try to, um, detract from that because it was me that, that that took all of the trades as you alluded to there was a lot of sensational reporting at the time that might not be completely accurate it's not a million miles away from the truth either um but it was a you know it was a period of um excess in in some degrees but it was also a period where the controls weren't particularly good everybody uh, nobody was really focused uh, on what was going on and nobody asked difficult questions and so it was easy um as wrong as it was it was easy to lead people uh, along a different path and uh, and not really interrogate the numbers that were 
um, that were being handed back to head office. Uh, if you, you know, and it doesn't take an accountant to do this, but if you look at some of the headline numbers, the uh, the position that I held, the amount of margin that I required, the amount of the capital base that I was using, uh, or the amount of the bank's capital that I was using, if you really look at those, even from a very superficial perspective, you know, they don't make sense. Um, but nobody was doing that form of interrogation uh, within bearings at that time. It was all about, you know, getting to the market quicker than anybody else, trying to make the money quicker than anybody else. And uh, the controls and the infrastructure weren't as good as they should have been. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, just staying on on um, some of these uh, points uh, for a little while longer. I mean, often um, when when you see big losses happening uh, today, and and they still do, you know, it's very often in in these kind of uh, quote unquote complex products like structured products. And of course, we all had to learn about subprime and its complexities during the great financial crisis but i mean you were trading futures and options and i've always thought that you know when these products are described uh, at least in textbooks uh, it sounds much more complicated than it really is and i'm guessing that uh, you know this perceived complexity by the people who were supposed to supervise you had no clue really um, about you know what you were trading or what their clients were were trading i mean what's kind of your Recollection, recollection of 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 this. Yeah, there's look, there's uh, there, there's definitely a little bit of that. Um, you know, I think there is this, or, or there was. I don't think it, it's true anymore, but there was an aura of complexity around it um, that really doesn't exist. I mean, if if you spend a bit of time to understand the markets or understand the products, they're very easy to understand. There's, you know, in in, in the modern. Uh, environment there are degrees of complexity now that have moved on from those you know what I was trading was very vanilla uh, futures and options so they were quite simple to understand and um, you know from an a a accounting or from a risk management perspective it was just simple accounting and making sure that when you add two numbers together they add that they equal a third number it was that simple but people weren't doing it and and that idea that they were complex may possibly have been one of the reasons that they that they, they didn't look as hard as they should have. But it was just, you know, it was incompetence and negligence on a grand scale. And it existed everywhere uh, within the organization um, at, at that time. I mean, I'd, um, I'd worked in Indonesia for bearings prior to that. I was in Jakarta um, for about 15 months and bearings were by far the biggest uh, or the biggest equity trader down there um, at that particular point through one of the local brokers. And we had 250 million pounds worth of unsettled trades because the, the, the script that we were receiving from brokers wasn't in good order. And when we tried to move it on to the end buyer, um, they wouldn't pay for it. Their bank wouldn't pay for it. So that was what we were down there trying to solve. So it's a story of always, you know, trying to be there first, but not having the infrastructure in place. And, you know, that's probably what came home to roost eventually in the end. And, you know, as much as I wish that something else had happened, um, you know, that's what we're, um, you know, that, that that's what my life is about, unfortunately, these days. Of course, yeah, sure. I want to bring uh, Moritz into this, but funnily enough, uh, I mean, if you could talk about 
funny. But but um, when I was doing a little bit of research prior to our conversation, I saw somewhere that there was another guy called Nick that brought bearings to its knees. Uh, he was called Nicholas some Bauer or something like that, where he had managed to get them to invest in some Argentine sewer system back in the day. So I, I don't know, you know, crazy world. Moritz, what do you have on your mind? Ah, many things, but we're, you know, uh, now that you've uh, you've mentioned Sir Carter, I've I wasn't aware when I like I was uh, reading up a little bit. I was I know that you were trading on the uh, the former Symex exchange in Singapore. Uh, I wasn't aware of the fact that you were in Seoul and Frankfurt and Jakarta, and you were saying you traded equities in Jakarta. Um, I've never really traded any Indonesian market. I mean, what what type of activity is going on down there, and what were clients looking to do? Well, I mean, Bearings had uh, Bearings had a name at the time. Now, I, I wasn't trading. We were down. I was in Hong Kong at the time, and um, what we, we were trying to uh, uh, initially solve the problem from Hong Kong. So it really was a case of everything was script traded. So everything was, you know, every piece of equity was on a on on a piece of paper. They were bearer certificates. Um, so as soon as uh, you you had the uh, the buy-in and the selling broker had put their their stamps on it. Effectively, whoever held that piece of paper um, could uh, could receive the money for it. Um, so we, uh, it was as crazy. Uh, it, it was a it, for me at the at the, the age that I was at 20, 21, 22, It's quite an exciting time, um, but it was really really crazy. It was dangerous. We had a uh, we had a bodyguard called Tino who uh, who was with us at all times, and uh, he was armed. Um, so he would pick us up from the hotel in the morning, take us to the office. And the first thing that you were told when you arrived at the airport was not to put your hand out the window, um, because if you had a ring ring on it, somebody would cut your finger off to get the ring. So it was it was quite a dangerous place. But there was a, um, a it, it was 1991 I, I, or it would have been 1991. I was in uh, Jakarta. So it, it was all of the booming tiger economies. Um, so it would have been the Philippines, it would have been the Indonesia, Singapore, all of those type of areas that were on a on, on a huge um, growth and um, on upward trajectory in terms of what the equity markets were doing. And um, Bearings had a name for for doing really good research, uh, having the best research in the market, and then facilitating the orders. So the orders would come from from Denmark, from clients that they had in Denmark, and they just wanted a bit of exposure in that region. But the problem was we were we were receiving, or we, we had a bank that we were receiving the, the, the script for us. And by the time we tried to move it on, we, we found that half of the signatures were missing. So I think that, you know, the majority of my day was with a, with a black legal sort of briefcase, which was handcuffed to my arm. Uh, and I would be going to the stock exchange and asking the brokers to sign the ones that they hadn't signed pre previously. Uh, and then if we couldn't find them there, we would be going out to some uh, some shack somewhere a couple of streets away from the main area in Jakarta, where you would hopefully find the person that would sign it that would then eventually mean that you would make your money. So this wasn't trading at the uh, at the top end of the spectrum. This was just uh, trying no. to get a job done. 
Yeah, and uh, like at Jakarta, I've been there once during the global financial crisis. I know what you mean. I mean, you've been there uh, 20 years earlier, but uh, I, I remember that main road from the airport to the city center with all the mopeds around. And, you know, it's, it's definitely not the place where you want to stop, probably not in the better times. Um, but so, I mean, one of the things that, that I wanted to get to is you were there at the age of 21, which, you know, I think is a fairly young age. Um, uh, to be sent uh, abroad uh, and run a business for a bank. So how did that come together? I mean, were you, you said you were 18 when you were looking for the first job. I mean, what, what drove you uh, to make that happen? Did, was there like a, an internal drive and you said, I, I really want to be a banker, I want to trade, this is what I'm really hungry for, and, and how did this happen? Yeah, I look, I, I've always been quite driven. Um, I, th I think sometimes that's, uh, you know, what, one of the things that probably got me um, in, into some of the situations that I did over that period. I come from a very working class background. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up on a council estate in, uh, in, in Watford in England. And, you know, my family would never have had a great deal. You know, we had a we had a good childhood, but there wouldn't have been a lot of money around to, 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 to fritter on anything that was, was not totally essential. Um, so very working class type of background, but I was always good at school. Um, and, and my mother would have driven me in that regard in terms of making sure that I was academically sound. And she would have always wanted me to have a better job than she did, you know, more money, uh, upwardly looking in, in, in that regard. So she would really have been the driving force. In terms of how I ended up in the world of banking, it was, uh, it was a little bit by default, to be honest with you. Um, Coots, which is the bank that I went to join, would, 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 would only have about 12 branches around the UK. You have to be a millionaire to bank there. Um, you know, it's not an organisation you see traditionally on the high street. It's only in very you know, it's down in Chelsea and Sloan Street and, and those sort of areas. So it's not a bank that I would have heard of. Um, so at the school that I was at, at at the time, a few people were applying for a job there. My plan was to go to university, um, but everybody was applying for this organisation. There was a certain mystique around it and uh, mystery around, uh, around the organisation. So I applied two people were given interviews and I was offered a job. Um, so it wasn't kind of the, the, the planned career path, but, you know, then when you get into that, that sort of environment, it, it, it either is something that interests you or, or it isn't. And the, I, I suppose the one thing that I always loved about the world of finance and the world of banking is, and especially from a trading perspective, is no two days are ever the same. You know, you, you've got to yes. adapt to the circumstances. They're always changing. There's always something different to think about in terms of um, the way that the, the, the markets are moving and reacting to things. And, you know, that, that was what I enjoyed. The reasons why I ended up, up um, out in Southeast Asia, I'd been to Japan with Morgan Stanley. Um, so I, I spent about uh, three or four months in Japan um, when I was there. Um, again, looking at the... Nikkei 225 that we were trading at that particular time. I spent a bit of time in, in, in Tokyo and in Osaka. And I loved Asia. And when, uh, when I, I, I also get bored quickly, right? So, um, you know, I, I always found it quite easy to, or 
I, I found some of the tasks that I was given at that time quite easy uh, to come to terms with. And um, it, when there was a, a limit to what I could learn or, or experience, I always wanted to move on. So the reason I ended up in Hong Kong was I, I basically told the people at Bearings I was going to leave uh, unless they um, found me something that, that, that was of interest to me. So um, the offer at that time was to move down to Sydney. Uh, and get involved in the in the, in the futures exchange down there, but they weren't quite ready to upgrade their membership, so they sent me out to Hong Kong um, to look after this equity issue uh, that they were dealing with. So I was in Hong Kong for a month. Um, we were trying to do what we could from Hong Kong. Uh, I think there's this perception Hong Kong is a nicer place in terms of uh, places to live or was at the time, um, but. For me, coming from the other side of the tracks, growing up on a council estate, you know, Jakarta wasn't that bad either. I, I had a great time whilst I was down in Jakarta. Great. Um, so let's, um, looking at, at your time at the Cymex, what, what type of products did you actually trade there? You've mentioned the Nikkei 225, which is also a product that's traded out of Singapore in addition to, to, to Japan. Was that the only product you traded or were there different markets that you were involved in? Um, the Nikkei was the main one. Um, we, we, we had a couple of customers uh, who were clearing through us in, in, in Singapore who were more focused on uh, the euro dollar and the euro yen, but they weren't the, uh, they weren't the things that I was involved in. Um, the JGB started to get a little bit more, um, uh, a little bit more volume um, in, in Singapore, um, and, and I certainly assisted with that. I think one of the uh, one of the things at the time, and again, you know, like it, it, there are so many things that you can touch on when you're describing uh, things that went wrong at that particular time. But the exchange, and you guys will know this because you're from a similar sort of era. Um, the exchange was trying to create a name for themselves, and the you know the the things that you look at is you look at the open interest, you look at the volume and, and see whether it's really a viable product. And apart from the euro dollar in Singapore at the time, there wasn't anything that was really viable. You know, the Nikkei 225 was trading 2,000 contracts. The JGB, when it started, you know, there might be 50 or 100 contracts going through. They had an MSCI Hong Kong uh, contract that they tried to introduce at one particular point. But none of them were really you know, doing anything from a volume perspective or from an open interest perspective. The thing that happened when fairly soon after we arrived in Singapore is that the Japanese market really started to, 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 to move downwards. Uh, and, and so all of the circuit breakers were kicking in. Um, so you, I think at the time, if you were, you were down 700 points on the Nikkei 225, that was it. The, the, the circuit breakers would stop trading for the day Everybody, I, I think, spoofing and layering was uh, a far more common uh, occurrence than, than, than I believe it is now. Um, but the market would be limit down for the day because everybody would put sell orders on top. And uh, I think the Nikkei 225 over that early period that I was in Singapore fell from about 39,000 all the way down to, um, to the best part of, uh, of 18, 19,000. But the exchange was always focused on how can we get more volume, how can we get more open interest, and how can we make these products look like people should be getting involved in them. And I kind of, 
at, at, at that time. And this isn't, you know, you're not so conscious of it at the time when it's happening. But for, for the president of the exchange, you know, I was kind of a godsend because I brought the volume with me. Um, and that volume enabled some of those products at the time to look artificially better than they were. And, and so he would encourage me to do things that wouldn't be allowed uh, today, but I would have regular meetings with him where he would look for me to do more volume. Some of that volume could even be off exchange. You know, so uh, one particular trader calling me off exchange and then just doing a cross on the market to, to, to provide the volume. Um, so um, we won't go into that in too much detail, but there was a there was a lot of that stuff that was going on at the time. So, you know, as much as people talk, talk about systemic breakdowns, this was, you know, like the, 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 the regulators weren't good. The, uh, the exchange wasn't particularly good, a bearings as an organization. Incompetence and negligence was everywhere. Mine very much at the forefront. I, don't, I, I never try to excuse, to excuse myself of that, but there just wasn't, if you tried to pinpoint one area of the financial markets in Singapore that was totally on their game and totally across everything that was going on at that time, you wouldn't find it. There wasn't one. You know, like it was a, it was a complete breakdown. Yeah, no, clearly times were very different um, back then, and still, I guess you, we still have, you know, these uh, these breakdowns even uh, nowadays. I want to, so you know, one of the things we talk a lot about when we explain the benefit of uh, being rules based investors, like we are or trend followers, is that the fact that. You know, these rules help us avoid at least, uh, you know, some of the human biases and emotions like overconfidence and greed and fear, you know, taking control of our decisions. So I want to try and tie that back a little bit to um, some of the things you went through back then in terms of, you know, you know, as you know, at a young age, uh, you know, uh, how that played into to everything. And then I also want to take it up a little bit further and say, you know, if we think about these you know, these terms, um, and now I know you're obviously doing something where you help and, and advise uh, people, uh, not specifically on what I'm going to ask you, but but on similar things. And that is, you know, if, if investors are looking nowadays, because due diligence is obviously a big thing, and certainly as managers, we go through, you know, lots of due diligence. But I was just wondering whether there are any signs that if it was you, and you were trying to kind of pick a manager or two to, to um, you know, hand over some of your uh, investments to. I mean, what are the things you would look for in a person in an organization um, that might suggest that they were take they're taking too much risk? Yeah, I, I mean, it's I suppose it's a question I've been asked a, a, a number of times over the years, and it, I, I don't think there's I don't think you're ever going to come up with this. You, this series of tests or silver bullet that really is going to um, that that is going to show that I think the due diligence that you mentioned um, is obviously quite key um, and, and and performance uh, and, and just you know analyzing that performance over a period of time you know every, everybody can be very successful for a short period of time um, but doing it consistently consistently over a long period is obviously very difficult difficult and the more you know obviously as you as you've mentioned the more rules but rule based that people are 
the more disciplined, the more structured, um, and, and, and testing those sort of things. And, and, and I think, obviously, the, the, uh, in the era that we live in, there's lots of reviews and things like that. But trying to identify who's going to be the, the bad apple in the, uh, in, in the orchard is, is very, very difficult. And I, you know, I know lots of, um, I, I do a lot of stuff that's risk management and compliance related from a, a conference perspective and you know goldman's and all of these big firms are, are, are spending a lot of money uh trying to um trying to work through the data that they have available um to them to try and highlight where something is going wrong and and it, it's costing an awful lot of money uh, and there's an awful lot of false positives and it's very very difficult for these organizations and i just and I, I know te technology vendors, and we, we spoke a little bit about the NASDAQ, and this is maybe why they're doing so well, but um, they always have a solution to something. I, I think they find solutions to things that aren't necessarily wrong in the first place or, 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 or don't really need to be looked at. But um, there's, there's an awful lot of data that needs to be used, and I, I think we've, we've probably gone to a stage where people are trying too hard in, in some aspects in terms of the way that they're mining that data um, to identify if something's going wrong. Um, I think common sense is a, is a real powerful tool. Um, you know, if, you, if, if the numbers don't add up or if something looks wrong, it, it normally is. If the numbers look too good to be true, um, they usually are. Seems like that um, common sense is in short supply uh, even to this day as Moritz was commenting uh, you know early on in our conversation about you know where the markets are and 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 you know in relationship to the crisis we're in right now but be that as it may I mean I think you're right and I think that you know, it, it is really hard to to spot uh, you know these kind of risks and of course in 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 many respects um, you know even within our industry which is not um, you know that uh, it is computerized but it's you know we're not talking about machines making the decisions yet um, and so you still rely on people at the end of the day and you still have to sit across people and kind of judge um, you know what kind of person they are and whether they're uh, someone who may be likely to be taking more risks than even they uh, realize, but but I can certainly see an even further challenge, um, and that is as as many of our competitors as well starts to move into this AI and 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 machine learning. I mean, how do investors even start to um, you know um, judge <laughs> whether these machines are potentially taking too much risk? And I want to tie that into something later. I also, want to uh, bring uh, Moritz uh, back to 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 this um, conversation. So I might come back to this, um, but certainly just maybe on on staying on the things you mentioned. You you advise large financial institutions today on on critical control functions. Uh, I mean, what what are the things that you impress upon them uh you know um and what are the good and the bad uh, kind of uh, institutions today in terms of them managing their their businesses uh, i think i remember from the last financial crisis we had that some of the swiss banks uh, were realizing that they were taking the same risk essentially but they were doing it through 30 plus different business lines without realizing it was the same risk that they were taking um, so, so what are some of the discussions, conversations, topics that that you have in in in, in your job today? 
Well, I think, um, you know, a lot of the things that happened back in, in my time with bearings, um, you know, people very much operating in silos, um, you know, nobody with that real holistic view of what was going on within the organisation. It's, it, it, it's about challenge uh, and, and it's about challenging what goes on. You know, we all, we all like to be challenged as individuals um, and it's, it's about challenging the, the organisation as well and, and asking the difficult questions. So, like none of this is particularly scientific or, 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 or really clever or complex, um, but it's people having that, um, that, that, that strength and desire to ask the difficult questions. I think, as you guys know, and as I would have known many years ago, you know, banking becomes, uh, can very quickly become a, a very well-paid, safe environment for a lot of people who work in that middle office uh, area. You know, you're not going to get paid the same sort of money in a, in, in a different industry. Um, and so a lot of people get themselves into a situation where they don't rock the boat and they don't ask those difficult questions. And I think that wherever you see... Um, wherever you see financial scandal over the last 20 years, even 30 years, it, it comes down to poor systems, poor controls, and poor quality of people in place to make sure those controls are effective. And again, that comes down to a due diligence side of thing um, in, in terms of um, how the managers of the, the, the operation uh, are performing and how good they are. I think there's been some developments. I like the first line of defense that you see within a lot of banking organizations now because, you know, and this is a crude response to an answer, but, um, you know, I've always been asked since I returned from Singapore in 99, what would have stopped me doing what I did? Uh, and, and the answer really is somebody good who I couldn't divert away from what was going on and they were prepared to ask me the difficult questions. The problem was at the time it was easily or it was far too easy for me to push people in the wrong direction you know as long as i was um confident in my response as 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 ridiculous as it sounded if i was confident they believed me uh, and and there were so many different occasions where i would get a phone call from somebody that would, you know, seeking an answer for a question, I would respond with the first thing that I that, that came into my head. The majority of the time, it was nonsensical, you know, and I'd be kicking myself five minutes later when I was thinking about this stupid response I'd given to somebody. But the confidence that that, that was exhibited was sufficient to get me over the line, which isn't, you know, which isn't acceptable. You know, there, there needs to be a proper investigation and interrogation of what's going on within the organization but that just didn't exist at bearings at the time so it's about doing the simple things right and as you know and as i know when the markets are good um, people get complacent really really quickly because everybody's making money uh, and, and it's quite easy to look the other way uh, on those occasions but the, the risk managers the compliance officers as much as you really don't think you need them you need really good ones to make sure that the business is, uh, you know, is safe, that it's robust, that it's, um, you know, being challenged effectively. From a from a personnel perspective, you know, as much as I talk about challenge, you also need to support people uh, and give them the skills that they need to do the job as effectively as they can. Um, that didn't exist at Bearings either. You know, we, it was very much sink or swim. 
you know, here's a job, you go and do it. If you if you do well, we'll pay you a lot of money. Um, if if you don't do well, we don't really want to know about it. But um, but there was no management uh, no management training courses. You know, I I was 25 running the operation in Singapore, and I, I had no real management expertise or experience at that time. Uh, and, and so you know, my relationships with my empl- my employees uh, and with the people that I worked for were weren't right. And, uh, you know, there was no correct delineation or differentiation between me and the people that worked for me. And that led to a lot of the bad decision making. Um, you know, I can give you so many different reasons why, you know, some of this poor decision making existed at the time. But it doesn't I, I, and none of them are an attempt to excuse what happened um, because they were all my decisions. And, and, and there was nobody else that influenced them in any way or shape or form. But if you have the right controls, if you have the right structures, if you have the right people in the right places, you can mitigate for that, you know, almost entirely. Um, and, it, you know, the, the CEO of the organization obviously will, 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 will or should heavily uh, impact or influence the conduct and culture that exists within the organization so it's just about getting all of those things right and like i said there is no silver bullet um you know there is no um no technology that's going to keep you completely safe there has to be a a a human oversight that is grounded in common sense that that asks those difficult questions yeah What's on your mind, uh, Moritz? Uh, many things. Uh, this is very interesting. What What I wanted to get to, Nick, is um, is the point, and you know, correct me if, if what I'm saying is is uh, is not right. But I think when you were on the Cymax, you were handling client orders, meaning you know you were executing orders. Clients were sending in orders. You were trading them on the floor, and um, and then as I read, that accident happened. Uh, where somebody traded the other side and you firstly initiated the 5.8s account um, to correct the loss that resulted from that position. Now, the 5.8s account is now obviously a prop trading account because, you know, there's no more client orders going into that account. You wanted to get rid of those losses. How was how was your thinking there? I mean, how was your trade... Was there any trading process? How were you thinking about getting, you know, trading the markets in order to get get that that account back into the black? It's, it's a difficult one. Um, the, uh, at first, the, the, the losses were quite small and um, there, um, you, you, you could close a position and you could, um, you, you could do um, whatever, or, or you could certainly go through the thought process of, how are you going to extricate yourself from that situation? So, um, you know, in, in, in later months, uh, options became involved. So I'll, I'll just take you through it. In those early stages, when the losses were still quite small, you know, I'd have a statement that would arrive on my desk. It wasn't the hidden account that everybody described it as, you know, like everybody in the office would see the documentation um, and it would be obviously ballot, it would, uh, impact on the balance sheet as well but there would be a statement on my desk in the morning that would show the position and I would try to 
at least think about how I was going to uh, trade my, my way out of that during, during the day. So initially it was futures contracts. So there were two things that were going on. On, on the one hand, we, we, we've, got, um, uh, we've got rollovers from, uh, from month to month in the contracts that, uh, in the Nikkei 225 that I'm executing for some of the, the guys on the trading desk in Japan. Um, so those still have to continue at pace. So there were situations where those, and most of the time I was just legging into them, you know, so there's no, this is not computer traded. You can go down and you can ask for a price in the, uh, in the June, September spread. And, you know, that might, uh, uh, go, I'm thinking back to what the price might have been at the time, but it's probably 120, 125 if you wanted to trade in any, any size, but obviously our traders were looking for something that was a, what was a better price. So I would leg into um, some of those uh, contracts when you saw the size there. Um, now every now and again, I'd get caught out on one of one or two of those, and that would also find itself into the, its way into the five eights account after it was initiated, after that initial loss. So there were occasions where the position would build as well. Um, by the end of 92, that I think the loss in the five eights account had escalated as much as nearly $5 million. Um, and that needed to, and, and there were ways that I had to get past that from an accounting perspective, which you're probably not too interested in at this time. Then the advent of options came into the market. But, and I can't tell you exactly at what point this was, the position got too big. And it certain, the position certainly superseded my ability to um, to extricate myself from the position, and I think at that point you you kind of you if you if you haven't been there already you're the rabbit in the headlights and you don't really know what you're supposed to do from that particular point. And the way that I describe that in later years is rather than having a choice every day when you went into the market and possibly flipping the trade around and taking the opposite side of the position, it just became protection. So if I was long, I was going to be long at the end of the day. Um, and if the position had built up during the course of the day, that was a, a, a consequence of trying to protect this position. Um, and there were ways that you could do that. And some of it would, have, would go back to that spoofing and layering that I spoke about a little bit before. You know, I would put buy orders in in Japan in order to try and it, like the Japanese market wouldn't open. So the Singaporean market became the lead market. And every now and again, you know, I'd get caught on one of those positions and the position uh, at some point, and, and it was early on, to be honest, at some point, the position just became too big and that element of choice was taken out. So the way that I try and describe that from a visualization perspective now is I didn't even want to see the statement after a while because the statement got too big and I wasn't even thinking about um, how I was going to trade myself out of that position. It was now about options and, and shorting options and having that eureka moment where the expiry would be uh, somewhere around the strike price that I had on from an options perspective. Because the, the thing that then probably took over control uh, was the options and, and where Cymex made their big mistake with the options contracts at that time was that if you sold options, you received 100% of the premium. 
that was the way that I could keep my 5.8. The only time that anybody looked at the balance sheet was the last day of the month. So there was a bearing futures balance sheet and there was a bearing securities, which was the group balance sheet, if you like, in Singapore. And the only way or the only day that the bearing futures was incorporated within the group balance sheet was the last day of the month. So on the last day of the month, the 5.8 account balance had to be zero. Otherwise, the account line would not agree. So it became, um, it wasn't so much a trading account as um, uh, it became a cash play in that at the end of every single month, the 5.8 account balance had to be zero. So if you had, so if you can imagine that uh, if it were, January options might expire um, and, and, and there would be a huge loss realized in the 5.8 account, and then I would have to sell February options in order to plug the gap um, that was left by that loss that materialized. So it was just really surviving month by month. And, um, and that, that definitely by that point, it was just really a case of surviving month by month. Interesting. So I, uh, I didn't know that. So, but you, uh, you were selling those straddles or strangles, I presume, in order to get the premium up front and you used that premium to settle and balance out the five eights account and um, understood. So what, what I also learned, and I'm not sure if this is true, but it seems that at one point when the losses were still smaller, you had this fortunate occasion where the account did balance out and you had like a way out because, you know, I was reading on the internet, it was something like, you know, 6 million and, you know, uh, you were able to make that 6 million back and all of a sudden the 5.8 account was flat. That would have been the opportunity to just say, whoo, lucky me, I'm, I'm you know, uh, nobody noticed. Uh, let's never go down that path again and just, you know, step away from it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, uh, that, that period was May of 1993. Uh, and the loss had been up to $20 million. So it was, um, it, it was a bit more um, than, you, uh, than you alluded to. Um, it, so in, in, in May of 1993, and I, I don't think I actually put any strangles positions on. I think everything was a straddle. And, you know, one of the questions you get, often get asked from a trading perspective is, you know, why did you choose straddles? And and, and this is where I, I mean it's more of a cash play, is straddles are obviously the most expensive, uh, or at the money straddles are the most expensive. And uh, if I needed to plug the hole, uh, the, I, I would have to sell fewer straddles to bring the account balance back down to zero. So it was simply a cash play um, at, at that particular point. So it was May of 1993. I don't know where exactly where the market was, but... Um, if it was at 19,000, uh, the, the, the expiry, which I think was the, the first Friday of the month, would have been at 19,005. Um, so the 20 million, uh, so there was 20 million, 250,000 pounds worth of profit. Um, uh, so I had the opposite problem. It's a Friday. I've got to get rid of quarter of a million dollars, which somebody took it on their trading book in Tokyo. Um, and, and that was it. Genuinely, as you as you uh, as, as you imagined, that was that's my get out of jail free card. Um, going home for the weekend, I'm gonna I'm gonna celebrate, and on Monday everything's gonna be different. The problem is, is that I have not changed. The people who work for me haven't changed. Uh, the systems, the controls, everything that's happening on the trading floor, none of that has changed. And there has to be. Um, a catalyst for change and it should have been me and um, it, it just didn't happen so on the Monday morning we go back onto the trading floor 
what, what, what would have been the best thing for me to do was leave um, and, and just disappear at that particular point because we're back to, we're back to ground zero. Um, right, there's, there was a loss. The loss has now uh, been made back and, you know, nobody's really going to create too much of a storm about it at that particular point. The problem was that, you know, I, I still had this belief in my ability um, and the, the, the hardest thing throughout all of this uh, from a personal perspective was telling those closest to me what was going on because then that's an admittance of failure and the fact that you're failing. You know, as much as I, I had a short business career, it was all built on success and, and being successful. And, and the one thing that I couldn't enunciate at that time was the fact that I was failing. And, and in order not to go back on that trading floor on, on the Monday morning, I would have had to go through that process. And, you know, I didn't do that throughout any of the period that I was in Singapore. Uh, and it's uh, announcing or, or announcing that failure to those closest to you is the, is the hardest thing. And if, if, uh, I think... I think it's harder for men anyway, but, um, you know, just doing it for anybody is, is difficult. So I went back to the trading floor on the Monday morning. Um, you know, the, the opening bell happened. The guys would be trading because everything was manual um, and, and the order fillers would be in the pit. Um, they've never been reprimanded. They've never been admonished for the for the seven or eight months prior to that occasion. So they... You know, they go straight back in, as they did on Friday. They do the same things on Monday. They make mistakes. Um, you know, there might be an order that's overfilled or underfilled. We have to make the client good. And it goes back into the 5.8s account um, because nothing's changed. Um, so uh, there has to be a, you know, there has to be that catalyst for change. And unfortunately, it didn't happen. Um, but, you know, if I'd, um, if, 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 uh, and you don't get your time again. So, you know, like wishful thinking for me is one of the most negative things that you do. So I don't, I don't go through these processes where I think I wish I should, I wish I did that or, or I'd wish I did. And traders know this as well, you know, like there's no point in you thinking about what you should have done with a trade. You've got to deal with the reality of what you did do and, uh, and then work your way, uh, work your way forward from that particular point. It's great to go back and look at things and, and, and say, okay, you know, this uh, th this is the way that I should have reacted. And I've done a lot of that uh, over that time, but not in a, in, in a wishful thinking sort of vein. My life would have, you know, woe is me. My life would have been really, really different if only I'd done this. You know, the fact is I didn't do that. This is what I did. And, you know, I've got to move forward and deal with that from, from, from that particular time. But... But yeah, you're right. Like twenty million dollars of a loss, twenty million two hundred and fifty dollars of a two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of profit, and 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 I was, uh, you know, I was out the gap at that particular point. But um, naive and um, you know, and and, and uh, stupid is that I don't like calling myself stupid too often, but stupid enough to go back onto the trading floor on on Monday morning. Why? Because I couldn't tell anybody what had gone on before, uh, and you know it's it, it's that personal failing, and you know as much you know, and I speak about this a lot, but as much as I was postponing the realization of the losses throughout the three three or three year period, 
for me personally, I was postponing the realization of my own failure. I think that makes a lot of sense, uh, Nick. Uh, I mean, one of the things, and I wasn't, I'm not entirely sure whether, you know, when you say you you were you you had made it all back, whether that meant that these were kind of paper profits, meaning you still had huge positions on that you. At that time, maybe you could get out of them, but later, I think your positions were so big, anyways, that you couldn't you couldn't do anything. You were the market. I mean, as you said, you brought the market to the exchange. I mean, you were the market, and therefore, there's no way you could get out of these massive positions. And that brings me to another kind of um, point that I wanted to to uh, maybe tie into a little bit about what 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 is going on uh, today, because I think that people often underestimate, uh, you know, the risk of liquidity or, or rather lack of liquidity. And um, that's one of my worries today is that you see more and more investors in search for yield, uh, you know, basically go out uh, in, in, in other types of risks that may not be um, easy to get out of, such as liquidity risks. Um, I mean, we come from the futures markets, the, th the three of us. So I think we're, you know, have always been... Um, fortunate to uh, to deal with very liquid markets you know except for the fact that you found yourself in a situation where you were the market so I, I understand that you can get into that but but generally speaking of course futures are very liquid but nowadays you see people get into all sorts of stuff including off exchange stuff and then when like we saw in March when um, uh, something goes bad um, a lot of these things there simply isn't any liquidity for people to get out so how I mean what's kind of been your um uh, or is that something you think about and talk about when you um talk to your clients today in terms of you know about those kind of risk you know set you know aside from internal controls and all that stuff but i mean just something as basic as you need to trade stuff that really is truly liquid yeah look i, th I think it's a fundamental thing um you know the uh, as you explained I, I certainly got myself into a situation where i was at least half of the market um or fairly close to half of the market especially with the options uh, positions that i had and so every time i stepped into the market the market was heavily skewed uh, by the uh, by the options market makers they knew what side i was and they were going to hold me to ransom all of the time and and it's just that it's just that basic demand and supply type type scenarios but yeah you you need markets that are as as liquid as they possibly can be i i still i still trade a little bit these days and um and and you can see that there is a limit to the amount of liquidity in certain markets at certain times and that's when it becomes very dangerous and uh you know i think for the non-professional investor to understand that i think is key but as you said you know trading those most liquid markets is is the way to keep yourself uh, safe. There's no point having a great entry point if you can't get out of the trade. Do you do you think the fact that um, futures exchanges have essentially gone off exchange now, it's electronic and, and there aren't the pits anymore? I mean, do you think that makes markets more or less liquid, actually? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I think it makes them safer. Um, I think it makes okay. them more more transparent. Um, I think there there are definitely uh, you know maybe there's um, maybe there. I mean, you guys would be closer to that than me in, in terms of the you know the actual futures markets. Um, 
I think it's a positive development. I mean, everything that I um, I used to, if, like if you go back to the 90s, there would always be the, you know, the, the, the comments about be, derivatives being weapons of mass destruction. And yes, in the wrong hands, they can be, I suppose, as I've proved. Um, and, and, and there's a number of people have proved since that time. But that's not the way that it should be. I mean, it's about... It's about using them efficiently. It's about using them intelligently. Uh, and I think since it's gone on, uh, since the futures markets have gone on, ex uh, or, uh, have gone uh, off exchange or uh, on screen, whichever way you want to, whichever way you want to describe that, I think it's been a positive development and um, you know easier to control. Um, I mean, there was lots of stuff that we used to do back in the day. That I'm sure still goes on from uh, in a similar uh, well not in a similar way but it goes on in some shape or form now um, but it's not um, it's not as blatant a as an abuse as it used to be I mean we were always trying to trigger stops everybody was at that game uh, in in the markets uh, and the problem is when you have too many humans standing around there is. That the, there's a certain amount that goes on dependent on who you know and who's holding what. So I think you know that 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 migration onto uh, onto being an online platform has been a positive development. I mean, I you know I used to get away with a few things on the floor um, that that were definitely flouting the rules, um, spoofing and layering. Um, you know, it it was rife in Japan at the time. Um, it's obviously highly illegal these days. And um, yeah, I, I, I think the more transparent the markets can be, the better. Yeah, which actually, in, in a sense, is a good thing about kind of the strategies we operate, that they are completely um, completely uh, transparent and, and liquid. And I think you're right. I mean, I think behavior, conduct, culture, I mean, these are really important things. And and maybe also, in a sense, you know, where the markets uh, are trading. I mean, we're close to all-time highs again, uh, believe it or not. And uh, and I don't know whether these short-term rewards that we see, not just in the trading world, but we talk about, you know, corporations and their quarterly uh, earnings and share buybacks and all of that. I mean, this short-termism you know, seems to potentially encourage uh, wrongdoing. I was curious, actually, Nick, whether... Um, whether you follow some of the uh, kind of other scandals that that have happened, uh, whether they catch your attention from time to time, and and whether you see any similarities, I mean, are many of these traders simply, as you say, you know, naive, immature, and and maybe they're too worried about their status? I mean, are these kind of common traits that you see uh if if indeed you have been following uh, these kind of things yeah look i I'm, I'm definitely not a student of the uh of all of these financial scandals that occur i obviously when uh, w when they start to surface um people often phone me to see if there's any similarities do i have any sympathy do i have any empathy um i don't have any sympathy or empathy um you know you I knew what I was doing. I knew I shouldn't be doing it, and and I continued. And and for those reasons, um, I was rightly punished uh, and sent to jail. I, I I don't have an issue with that. I um I, I it was my wrongdoing um, at that particular time. Um, and I think anybody who works in the financial services industry or in the in the world of finance is intelligent. 
um, they know the difference between right and wrong, and and you know when you're uh, when you're going down that wrong path. So, you know, trying to blame it on the bank or or, or some control element that, that that existed at that time is is wrong. Um, you know, I think the banks are very good at, at deflecting blame for a period of time, and I understand why they do it. Um, the, uh, the attention goes on the individual because. You know, it, it, it detracts from some of the shortcomings that exist within the bank at that particular time. But there was a phrase that I think probably is uh, that you used in in, in the, one of your last sentences, and that was, or there's a word, and, and the word is status. Um, I, I, I speak uh, a lot about success and my need for success and be, being very focused on that. I, I wrote a book with a psychologist a few years ago and he doesn't uh, look at it as in terms of success. He, he uses the word status. Uh, and so, you know, within the organization and, uh, and within my domestic situation at the time, I had a certain amount of status. And, and all of those status relationships became too important for me. Um, and I couldn't let any of them down. So he uses a phrase at the end of the first chapter, which is about status, which says, when an immature person has status, they will do anything, absolutely anything, to protect it. And, and that's kind of where I think I was at that time. You know, from a business perspective, you know, I, I, either massively immature or relatively immature. We'll leave that one open to, to your viewers' uh, decision, but certainly immature. Um, and... Um, you know, I, whether it was success or status or, or just a fear of failure, I, wa I wasn't able to overcome that situation. And, um, you know, those, that, those are the sort of, as much as you can talk from, a, from an organisational perspective in terms of how people can improve, you know, there's a lot of personal psychological stuff that, that, that needs to be focused on as well. And, and, you know, the, the, the interesting thing I find about these situations is that I think that when you do confront uh, you kind of your bad behavior or your losses uh, and, and you correct them, you know, I think it's true that, you know, most people are able to move forward, uh, you know, whether it's in your career or whether it's like we as a, as a trader, you know, we have our stops, we, we take our stops, we take our loss and we wait for the next trade to... Uh, kind of come around and it's not really about being right or wrong it's about staying in the game and 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 being able to trade for for another day um uh again i want to bring uh, morris in we're trying here we have maybe a different lines of questions but morris uh where are you on your on your list of questions for nick yeah i don't have you know a particular list we're just going with the flow but um you've mentioned nick that you're trading a bit for yourself these days um i just wanted to ask i mean how do you trade uh and what do you think are the most important aspects to successful trading um well i i mean i think as as you've mentioned already in in some of the things at the beginning i think being quite rule-based is um is important i think it's it's always to it's always good as uh, as niels was saying to 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 learn from your experiences and from uh, from your mistakes, and I, I, I was never the, the, the most disciplined. I was never the most structured. Um, so the more rule-based I become, um, that the, the safer that makes my trading. Um, I, I I trade indices, so um, you know the the, the two that I um, that I'm more involved in at the moment are, are 
the DAX and the Dow. Um, and it's just simply because there's more volatility. So I'm not going to, um, I'm, I'm not really into trading currencies and things like that. So I'm not that diverse. Um, I know I, I listened to your introductions at the beginning, so I'm certainly not as diverse as you two guys. Um, it really is just the indices. And it's, um, you know, I think one of the things that I learned from my own personal perspective many years ago, and you guys will manage this very differently um, to me, one of my biggest problems was um, the, uh, the, the carrying a position. Um, you know, and how that influenced my my thought processes. So I'm very much day trading. Um, I'm I'm very much focused on what the market's going to do today. Um, not really too bothered about what it does tomorrow or next week. Um, it's really just having that. And I call it, um, you know, my blank piece of paper. I start each day with that blank piece of paper and have choice, uh, which is not, uh, you know, I never had choice at bearings. Now it was. You know, that was of my uh, of my making. Um, but every morning when I get up and I'm I'm looking to do something in the market, it's about what I'm doing today. So it's it's free choice first thing in the morning. Now, once I initiate that position, I you know sometimes I have to manage them through the day, but um, but I don't carry anything overnight. So um, you know I know the things that got me into the mess that I did years ago, and I I try to address those. I mean, prison was. You know, I spent four and a half years in prison between Germany and Singapore as well. So from a from a personal perspective, um, you know, I looked at lots of situations that I got myself into, um, uh, decisions that I made, and have really scrutinised those. And you have to pull back the veneer. And I think Niels was was uh, was, was mentioning this uh, in in his statement just prior to this. You know, you pull back the veneer. You really you, you come to the conclusion. After doing all of that in Singapore, and I, I used to keep notes and look at situations that I'd found myself in and the way that I reacted to them, um, and, and, and really came to the conclusion that I didn't like myself and that you, you, know, you really need to start rebuilding from that point. But unless you really pull back that veneer and, 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 and hit, hit that bottom level, it's impossible to, to, to rebuild yourself. Um, but from a trading perspective, it's it, it's working out, you know, it, it is, again, identifying the things that, that, that went wrong for you in the past and, and, and adapting. And I think trading the conditions is, you know, there's lots of um, there's lots of schooling out there and there's lots of schools of thought from a technical perspective in terms of the way that people trade. But you also have to trade the conditions and the conditions at the moment are slightly unusual to say the least um, you know volatility's gone sky high and is now coming back I think the markets are uh, reverting to some form of normality at the moment I don't know if you I don't know if you agree with that but um, I, I you know volatility is down to what about 27 now 28 27 28 still very high but it's uh, it's a lot lower than it was I guess the beautiful thing about um being um, a trend follower, we don't really worry too much about, you know, normality in the markets or anything like that. Um, I wanted maybe also to kind of round up my questions uh, and sort of inspired by, uh, you know, what you just said uh, in response to Moritz's question. 
I had a couple of things I wanted to kind of uh, finish off with. One is that, I mean, at a young age, you certainly have been dealing with immense pressure for a long period of time. Um, and um, I was curious as to how that may uh, have impacted you um, and, and, and maybe how it impacts you uh, today and, and maybe some of the things you've done to work on your own mindset to move forward. And then, of course, I I did hear you talk uh, on another podcast about your time in the uh, Singapore uh, prisons uh, service, so to speak. And maybe just for the audience, I think it could be interesting just to give them a little bit of an insight because that didn't sound like a, uh, a very nice um, environment to be in uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the... the, the the, the triads, I guess, were one of the things I caught up and, and just the way that you were asked to to uh, kind of um, sleep and all of those things. But I'm sure you know what I refer to. I think that that um, just just talk a little bit about that as well. I think it, 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 it shows people that you have certainly also, um, you know, dealt with some rough situations uh, and, and not just the, the high-flying life in, in Singapore, so to speak. Yeah, I, I mean, I... Yeah, I, I wrote a book on stress many years ago, um, and, and, and part of the reason was I, I suppose I went through um, most of life's stressful events in a very short period of time. And, you know, there was no, um, I think we all have an innate ability to cope um, with everything that we're going to face in life. Um, you do, it's not readily apparent where it is or where it's going to come from, but I think that it exists. Um, and it's only sometimes when you're in those most difficult situations that it that it comes to uh, comes to the forefront. Um, when I was in Singapore and um, and and, and Bearings was uh, or I was working at Bearings, the coping strategies weren't good. You know, it, uh, there was a lot of alcohol. Um, it was all about avoidance, and alcohol was just another way of avoiding what was going on at the time. Um, so you know that had its own impact and. Whilst you, you look at those extreme levels of, um, of stress, not living my life particularly well, you know, eating a lot of, um, um, e eating a lot of the wrong foods, drinking too much, um, all of that, in my opinion, um, led to the onset of cancer, which I had whilst I was in prison in Singapore. So I had colon cancer. So it's very much a consequence of the way that I was uh, uh, that, that I was living my life, but you know it, it certainly wasn't a good way to cope with the situation. But it was the only way um, that I knew how at that time, and and as I've said, it was all about avoidance and avoiding what was going on and avoiding telling anybody what was what was really happening. Um, prison was was very very tough. I was in. I was in prison in, in Germany, in Frankfurt, for nine months before I went back to Singapore. Um, and it was a bit of a stepping stone down into what Singapore was going to be like. Um, Singapore was a lot, lot tougher. Um, it's very hot, as you can imagine, all day, every day. Um, you sleep on the floor, which is very rough and uneven. There's three people to a cell, and a, a cell would be six foot by nine foot, so there's not a great deal of room. You're locked up for 23 hours a day. Um, but again, you know, it, that, that's a consequence of your actions. It, it, that's not something that I'm going to gripe or complain about. It's, um, you know, it was what was put in front of you and, and what you have to overcome. And, 
you know, unfortunately I got ill whilst I was in prison in Singapore as well. So, you know, you have to go through that, that process. And strangely enough, it made me a little bit more resolute to complete and to complete the sentence and come out stronger um, just because everybody was expecting me to be ill. And, uh, you know, I, I think they for, certainly for a while they thought I was going to die. Um, I had a, an emergency operation to remove um, a, a tumour that was seven centimetres by ten centimetres and then had, you know, still had eight months of my sentence left to go. So I had to, you know, rebuild and you, you visualise things very differently. I, I, I had chemotherapy. Um, whilst I was in prison in Singapore. So you just visualise through sweating and through exercising, I was visualising the drug going through me. Um, in terms of, um, you know, messages or, or, or things that, that, that stay with me from that time, prison, you know, just because you were so much controlled, it was very regimental. Um, it, the, the thing that it taught me more than anything else was there's things in your life you can influence and there's things in life you can't influence um, and, and so very much now I focus on the things that I can influence and and don't worry about the uh, the, the other things yeah no that makes that makes total sense and and you know we're told by 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 many people we're we're told that you know what doesn't kill us makes us stronger and and of course we we should all learn from our mistakes and and not repeat them um so uh you mentioned you had kids, and my final question is just um, what's kind of the key things you or the key, uh, yeah, things should you try to impress upon them based on on your experience so far in, in life? Well, yeah, I mean, simple things, really. It's um, that they, they, they know of my history now and, uh, you know, how, how situations can get out of control. So, you know, I, I tell them to, um, you know, we all obviously teach our children the, the, the difference between right and wrong. Um, but I always encourage them to communicate. I think communication is a, is a hugely powerful tool, uh, both for an organisation and for an individual. So I, I always encourage them to talk, never to, to, be, to feel ashamed of, uh, of expressing themselves. Um, I think too, far too many children keep stuff in, as I did many years ago, and... You know, the rate of suicide that we see in lots of different countries is far too high. Um, and I think the more that people communicate and share their feelings and feel empowered and strong enough to be able to do that, the, uh, the better your, your family, society will be uh, in, in the long term. Um, and I always, you know, we all have different experiences. We've all been through different things. You guys have chosen the right path. I've chosen the wrong path from time to time. Um, but we have that experience, and uh, so I always encourage them to ask for help um, and advice because that's what we're there for, and we can we can steer them in the right direction. And if they've done something wrong, you know they'll be punished for a short period of time, but it's not going to last forever. And it's uh, you know just don't be a, don't hold any or, or don't um, not hide don't hold anything back, but always communicate. I think communication is is very very powerful. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm sure you might have some final thoughts, Moritz, before we dive into those. Uh, maybe I'm just going to do a quick run through on the um, on the uh, where we ended up uh, the week or at least by Thursday evening in terms of uh, the indices we track here every week. 
Uh, beta 50 index up uh, 0.33 for the month so far, down 1.51 for the year. The SOCGEN CTA index up a quarter percent uh, and pretty flat for the year so far. The SOCGEN trend index up about half a percent uh, and up 3% for the year. The SOCGEN short-term traders index down about 20 bips uh, so far in uh, May and up 3.69% for the year. Um, and that's about uh, it for now, at least. Any final thoughts from, from you, Moritz? Questions? And of course, from you, Nick, any final thoughts um, before we wrap up? Yeah, I, I wanted to bring up um, one thing, Nick. What's like your day-to-day -day business or what you're doing today? I um, saw on the web that you're running a website called Bull and Bear Capital or Bull and Bear Cap, I think it is called. And um, Maybe you want to tell us a little bit more about what it is that you're doing there. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just a mentoring service, uh, uh, really, Moritz. Um, the, uh, one of the things, I suppose, that's exploded over, over the last few years or maybe the last decade or so is uh, the amount of retail trading that goes on. Um, I think the thing that I find quite unsavory uh, with it um, over, over the last few years is the marketing. Um, so it, it's those, um, you know, those guys who put themselves out there with a picture of a Ferrari and the idea that it's easy to make money. It's not easy to make money. So lots of people have, have, uh, have difficulties with some of the psychology around the trading. That's really where it's geared at a little bit more. People who, who are experiencing problems with the, the way that they trade and maybe are, are looking for a little bit of a steer in, in regards to some of that. So you know, people not taking losses when they should. I mean, it's it's probably the complete opposite of everything that you do, you guys do, because the retail traders aren't that structured. You know, they're not that rule-based, and uh, you tend to find that they get themselves into a lot of trouble very, very quickly. And there's a lot of misleading advertising. So there's no misleading advertising with me, you know. Uh, I think my history is, uh, uh, you know, goes goes before me so it, it, it's uh you know it, it's just there as a form of mentoring different people need different things and you know it's uh, it's geared more towards that retail space maybe one point that when you go out and you meet people and see people i mean is it all about hey nick tell me the story about singapore hey nick tell me about this hey nick how did you lose that much money hey nick here's the bearings bank i mean how often does it happen? And I guess that would be a nice thing. It's just like, hey, Nick, we'll have a barbecue, have a beer. Let's talk about, I don't know what, Manchester City or, you know, some other stuff. But not none of that trading stuff. I mean, does that happen? Because you're such a, you know, in, the, in that limelight of, of what happened, it's, you know, like Niels and I, I mean, obviously we're asking you questions about that history. But, you know, does it happen that it's just, you know, normal talk? Yeah, sure it does. I mean, you know, like I, um, I, I do a lot of a, a lot of speaking around the world. So you, 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 you go, th you have to go through a certain amount of that. But then, you know, life is fairly normal outside of that, to be honest. So, you know, I, I'd be well known around where I live in Galway in Ireland. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there's this, like, and I don't mind talking about it. It's it's not like this big emotional bag that I carry around with me I've kind of I think I've gone through the process and and you know when you look at some of the other road trading episodes and the other people who've been involved you do worry that you know the more that you blame other people uh, I think you've not really dealt with the situation and 
and really accepted what you did. And, and that acceptance, that responsibility is part of the way you build yourself for going forward. So, you know, I, I don't mind answering the questions. You know, like if we were out for a few beers in town and there were too many questions, I'd probably tell you to be quiet after a while and we'll, you know, we'll do something else. We'll watch the match or, or, or do something in that regard. So I, I'm as normal today as I was. Well, I don't know if that's fair to say that I was normal all those years ago because obviously my history pre precedes me. But yeah, look, I, behavior, uh, 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 behavior exists on a continuum, right? I'm not massively different to the way that I was. Uh, back in 1995 but there is a good end to the spectrum and there's a bad end and you know I, I have to appreciate that I was at the bad end of, of that, that that spectrum many years ago and you know I've moved myself closer to the the, the, the good end I, I don't think I'm at it uh, I'm somewhere in between but yeah look I'm very normal I've, I've always been quite um, and, and this is strange when you've lost 862 million pounds but you know, I would describe myself as quite rational, um, quite realistic about things. I, you know, I, I, I don't, um, I don't believe in all of the press and, uh, you know, good or bad. And it's, yeah, I, I have a very normal life. I, I head over to Manchester to see the football and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be out for a few beers at the weekend. Well, you can't go anywhere for beer at the moment, but, um, you know, maybe in future I'll be able to do that again. And of course, you had you and McGregor play you, which not everyone can say. I'm a bit disappointed. You, you, you know, I think they could have got somebody better looking. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I, it's it's weird. I mean, that, when I stand up to talk, I, that, that's my first apology, and I have to apology. I have to apologize to the women in the room that I look nothing like him, but uh, he doesn't know the story as well as I do. Indeed. Well, we certainly appreciate you coming on today and uh, and talking about your story and, and all the things that, uh, in a sense, we can all learn from it. And, uh, you know, as you say, we're all work in progress, uh, so to speak. Um, I think on that note, I think I'm going to wrap up um, this week's conversation. Nick, it's been really good having you on the show uh, and we appreciate your views and and certainly your insights uh, and, and we hope that our listeners have had a uh, you know, an interesting kind of different episode today, but nevertheless, uh, a really interesting conversation, I thought. From Moritz, Nick and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, stay safe and healthy and uh, take care. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.